What is up, everybody? Welcome to our final preseason episode of the DFS MVP podcast. I'm TJ Hernandez, director of DFS at 444 here with my co-host, Matt Savoca, as always. Welcome back to the seventh season. This is episode 158. If you're new to the podcast, we are a NFL DFS strategy-based podcast. Uh, every week during the regular season, we go over your favorite uh, FanDuel, DraftKings values, like a lot of other podcasts, we set ourselves apart because we also go over a different theory topic every week during the regular season that helps you expand uh, your metagame a little bit. During the preseason, it's a little bit different. We dive into one theory topic to help you get better, dive really deep into that topic, and that's the entire episode. Uh, today, we're going to be going position by position uh, strategy, uh, whether it's salary um, or just how to pick the position across different sites. Before we get into that, if you haven't signed up for the DFS subscription yet, you can go to 444.com and use promo code DFSMVP. That'll get you 10% off the DFS subscription. Or if you haven't signed up for a prize picks account yet, you can head over to 444.com slash prize picks and get details on how to get a DFS subscription for just $20. Again, that's only for new prize picks users. If you sign up for either of those, uh, make sure you head over, get signed up for our Discord because that's we'll, where we'll be doing a lot of our uh, last minute DFS analysis. And we try to be in there as much as possible throughout the week. Myself, Matt, and all of the other DFS analysts. Uh, over the next couple of days, I'll be doing a couple redraft chats in the discord so make sure you get signed up uh before those go off uh before we get into everything today if you are waiting for that week one dfs slate to pop off uh and you need to scratch an itch i would suggest signing up for underdog fantasy uh there are still a ton of options for best ball over at underdog if you're not familiar with best ball it's a draft only league you set it and forget it you draft your team in a 12 team league over 18 rounds no trades, no waivers, no lineup setting. Your lineup is optimized for you every week. Right now, users who deposit $10 get a classic or a pro subscription and $25 from Underdog by going to 444.com slash Underdog. That's the number four, F-O-R, the number four.com slash Underdog. That $25 is very important because that's equivalent to a Best Ball Mania ticket. There is still room less in the Best Ball Mania tournament. You think it's going to fill, TJ? You think it's going to fill? I, I, think, I think there's going to be a, a little bit of overlay. Like, if it's like right under 90% filled right now. We have about a week left. Um, million dollar prize pool up top. So, I mean, you might be getting value just by entering it alone because, I mean, they still need 30,000 entrants or something like that. So, uh, get in there this week. Fire off some uh, tickets to that Best Ball Mania. Uh, we've both been firing a ton, and, and hopefully one of us takes it down. Uh, but make sure yes, you go over there. Make sure you go over there. Get that. That's 444.com slash underdog. Um, Matt, let's get into the meat and bones of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've put out a ton of strategy-based, uh, position-specific content. You put out a great article this week named The Definitive Guide to FanDuel Cash Games. You're going to be writing the FanDuel Cash Game article each week this year, so you kind of went over your process for how you're going to be formulating that every week, went position by position there. I just released the DFS playbook, went into the, some of the same topics that you went over, also went over some uh, GPP theory on that. So today we're just 
before we get into week one, we're going to go position by position. Some of these topics we've touched on from uh, questions from listeners or lightly touched on with Jordan last week, but we're really going to dive into each position and talk about the strategy for rostering each position in DFS. Uh, so let's start with quarterbacks. Uh, before I throw it to you and talk about things uh, which you're researching, for every position I went through and uh, Sam Hoppin, uh, 444's data scientist, he helped me go through and look at um, which uh, sample size is most relevant for each position? Because I, I think uh, in the in the articles I mentioned, it's really easy to get caught up and say, "Oh, last week this player did this," or "So far this season this player has done this." And a lot of times, um, I mean, we get caught up in it. We see a lot of other analysts do it. Just kind of pick that sample size that fits the narrative you're trying to explain, right? But that's obviously not uh, scientific and, and not what we're trying to do. We're trying to find the best model. So we took fantasy points per game and went through each sample size of games in season, figured out what sample size was most predictive for the next game's fantasy production. So for quarterbacks, we found out that their average fantasy points per game for the last five games is the most predictive sample for their next game scoring. So if you're going to be use, using fantasy points per game and extrapolating who the most likely quarterbacks are to have a big game the next next week, we want to look at a five-game sample. And that's pretty much going to pertain to all of these stats we're talking about. So for each position, um, I'll, I'll touch on that briefly before we touch on other things such as which stats we're looking at. But um, Matt, when you're researching quarterback, which stats are you using in your quarterback research yeah and man i can't overstate how important it is to talk about sample sizes i know you just went on a long diatribe about it but when we talk about the way that the pricing the salary changes from player to player each week it is so much based on of course matchup but it is based on their recent performance so if we can just outpace the field by understanding what recent means the most correct right. version of recent we're going to have a leg up so just want to add that there there are some sure. more stats we're definitely going to look for in quarterbacks uh i talk about some of the more advanced metrics that you can look to but don't forget about things like touchdown rate which is mm -hmm. touchdowns over passes thrown or even better touchdowns over total offensive snaps that gives you a great idea of a quarterback's efficiency upside and ultimately what we're looking for in quarterback performances and this is different than the running backs and the wide receivers and the tight ends is efficiency especially when we're talking about players who have great passing performances sure running is a little bit of a different story so there are some great new advanced passing metrics that have come to light over the last few years that are curated, free, easy to look up, uh, such as expected points added per play. And that's one uh, from the from the data NFL data community that really talks about the expectation of a play based on situational expectations and then seeing how a player performs above or below that expectation. Think about how many factors a Vegas implied total puts into that algorithm that number is made up of many different other numbers same thing with expected points and it's other it's other metric expected points added so that is really my favorite there the same process has been applied to completion percentage another stat that really applies to great quarterback performances and we now have completion percentage over expected again you can look these up for free in my cash game article i give you links to all that and What's, what's incredible is that we can often find value plays that aren't much more than the minimum salary that look good in these fairly relevant stats. Now, 
projection is the most important thing. I say that at the very top of the article, the four for four projections will get you a long way as will Vegas totals. But when we're looking to go to that next level and before we figure out what contests we're playing, this is, uh, this is the place I like to go. These advanced metrics to try to get a leg up. Yeah. And the, that last note that, that you made about um, the four for four projections in the, in the playbook, uh, I go over all these st- stats and, and relate them to uh, fantasy points for the next game. And uh, by a huge gap, no matter what position, what what data uh, point you're looking at, um, projections have been the most consistent in terms of predicting the next game. And, and that makes sense, right? Because we've talked about on this podcast before about double counting metrics or, or doing more working uh, smarter, not harder. And obviously like John Paulson has been extremely accurate in projections. So he's looking at all of these things. So these all go into his projections, but I, I do think it is still important to uh, figure out where these things come from because when you do take the time to do your own homework, instead of just plugging in a projection to an optimizer and, and looking at the most optimal plays based on that um, by doing your own homework, you, you are able to kind of look at these um microcosms in these games and, and just really drill down to what you're looking for and and split hairs that's what we're trying to do a lot right because a lot of times these projections will mm-hmm. be you know tenths of, of a point apart so that's really important and what you touched on wh- which i mentioned a ton in the playbook is that um these efficiency metrics do stand out more so for quarterbacks in any other position and i'm not going to uh, rehash what you said but i think one point that I, is really important in chasing efficiency over volume when it comes to uh, quarterback specifically is it gets rid of that notion that um, that a, a quarterback that's going to have to throw more is a better play. And a lot of times we see that um, it, I, I think it's, it's waned a little bit that that line of thought um, from people that are on Twitter, people that subscribe to sites like four for four, but there's still a lot of people that um, are caught up in that old thinking. So I, I, it is important to note that, those quarterbacks that are going to be throwing more that might be big underdogs, which is is the narrative we hear a lot, those are really bad conditions to be throwing, and it's really hard to be an efficient passer um, when the defense knows you're going to throw, when uh, they're able to to just pin their ears back, rush, when they, their DBs know that the pass is likely coming or prepared for it. Um, all of those factors make it really hard for a quarterback to throw, so I, I think it's important for us to reiterate that. Um, moving on to uh, the DFS portion of what we look for in quarterback. And that's what we found when we are looking at quarterbacks in terms of pricing tiers. Um, are we always paying up for them? Are we paying down for them? What have you found when, um, especially in cash games, it, what salary range quarterbacks work the best? Well, I'm going to make the caveat that we could really make over and over again, but I'll at least say it once. This is know your know your scoring, know your platform, know your contest, and know the week you're playing in. There are some weeks where that number one quarterback, I mean, Jordan uh, did a great job last week in the DFS MVP podcast talking about outliers and finding projection-based outliers using Z scores, mm-hmm. sometimes in the onesie positions like quarterback, a premium a premium player, a top three in their ranking and in terms of salary will really stand out. But for the most part, especially if you're talking about cash and getting bankable performance based on expectation, the middle tier of quarterbacks is really where we're focusing. And that's why we're going to the next level with the metrics we're looking at because we are, as you said, splitting hairs. It is uh, lower in salary, obviously, so that means we can go uh, with more money for our flex positions. But it also creates a situation where 
with other positions, we can't get that consistent production from this salary tier or this rankings tier, I should say, of salary with the other positions. And just like the late round quarterback has made its waves through the season long community, so can that be applied to the DFS game, especially in cash, where we just want to meet salary based expectations. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to worry about vastly exceeding those expectations in cash. So I really urge you to check out the middle tier, see if there's a couple of quarterbacks who sort of check every box in terms of implied totals, high projections, high, high advanced metrics, and then see if you must play one of the lower end or upper end quarterbacks. Yeah, what, what I found in looking at um, salary-based ex- expectation when I was doing the playbook is that we um, we do s- kind of see a, a steady decline in that salary-based expectation. But if you look closely at the article and you look at the um, the expectation, the, the trend line, you do see the line on both FanDuel and DraftKings kind of flatten out in that like high middle tier. So um, you're, you're not often, let's use FanDuel as an example. You're not often going to have quarterbacks that are priced near 9,000, but you will have a couple. But when you get like in that 8,000 to 7,000 range, you might see like uh, a, a, a Dak Prescott priced up like six or $700 more than a Lamar Jackson, maybe just cause he's been on fire. But if we think about how those two players might perform, they're both very mobile. Lamar Jackson, a lot more mobile. And if he's coming off of a couple of games where maybe he hasn't thrown a lot of touchdowns, that six or $700 salary could open things up a lot to, um, to, price some other studs into your lineup that you might not otherwise with the deck. And if we do have these quarterbacks that are in this similar uh, skill tier or like dual threat tier, and we have that big gap without some huge difference in implied point total or, or point expectation, it often doesn't make sense to pay up for like the, I'll call it like the top middle tier compared to the bottom of, of the middle tier. Um, if those players are similarly, similarly skilled, uh, and we're always seeking out value in cash. And then if we move over to, to GPPs, what we do see is that while the salary and the ownership curves are pretty flat, um, we see a lot of contrarian quarterbacks in winning GPP lineups, but not a lot of super cheap quarterbacks. So because it is a onesie position and because you're rarely going to see quarterbacks in like more than 20% of lineups. It's not that hard to find a seven, eight, nine, 10% quarterback that is still relatively high price, maybe a plus seven K on, on FanDuel or plus six K on, on uh, DraftKings, just because there's, there's only so many quarterbacks that people could roster. Uh, so contrarian, but not paying all the way down for quarterback. And then like you mentioned, if, if you are looking at when you should be paying up, uh, Jordan's article just came out on four for four that does explain those Z scores very well. So if you were watching last week or, or if you're just hearing us talk about it right now and don't know what the hell we're talking about, uh, just go to Jordan's article and he, he lays out the math for you and gives you some examples that make it super actionable for you. Uh, let's move on to running backs. Um, again, just quickly touch on the relevant sample size. I found that with running backs uh, at six games is where we get a, a really big spike in when fantasy points per game becomes very predictive. Um, but for running back, it's the most consistent position beyond six games in terms of stability and predictability. So six games is the most predictable, but the stability and the predictability is so high from six games all the way through 15 games that you can really, there's, there's no downside to using larger samples than six games, but any sample size, like four games or below, uh, oftentimes that is just noise for running backs because obviously things 
things like a couple touchdowns can really uh, offset scoring in, in the span of three or four weeks. But uh, any thoughts on sample size uh, with you, Matt? Yeah, I think that's really relevant info and also super actionable. But we also have to remember that with the running back position, more so than quarterback, wide receiver, or tight end, this is a, a next man situation, next man up situation, I should say, where oftentimes if there is an injury or a personnel change at the running back position, not always, but we see some some teams just move a new player into a very, very similar role. Mm-hmm. So whereas we're looking for... Uh, I think it's sort of a myth a little bit with wide receivers and especially with tight ends when they're injured for those targets to be redistributed to the same position or even the same amount of targets because you have to remember a good player often helps a team be efficient which means more plays overall in a game Mm -hmm. usually so going back to the running back position oftentimes the the rusher is based on the expectation of the play, the down, the situation of the game. And so really what they need is just a player to fill that void in their playbook. So you get situations where you get fill-ins. Everyone who is a DFS veteran knows these low-salary locks that you can basically get as a free square. We see that most at the running back position. Yeah, so, um, I mean, that kind of just ties into our next point. Like, we can, a lot of times we can just, plug and play these running backs and often predict when they are going to fulfill that role. But before we get to that point of filling that role, what are, what are the stats you're looking for um, in terms of that role? Yeah. The big, the big switch here from quarterback, of course, is volume. Volume Mm -hmm. is King. And we can talk about some of the more typical carries per game targets per game as uh, everyone knows at this point, especially on the full PPR DraftKings site, how important targets per game. I combine targets and uh, opportunities inside the 10, carries inside the 10, and I call that stat quality opportunities. I just think it takes uh, the noise that carries inside the 20 that in terms of expected fantasy points is almost nothing unless the player breaks off a huge run. Um, And I mentioned this a lot in the cash game article that we shouldn't really look at red zone stats as much as we should look at stats uh, stats from carries inside the 10 Mm -hmm. and carries especially inside the five. And I have a visualization there that shows this massive spike up once you get inside the 10 yard line. Uh, even though it's in the red zone, an, a carry from the 18 has very little expectation of going into the end zone. And yeah. last, uh, there's metrics that roll all of this opportunity into one metric and then puts it on the same scale as fantasy points, which can be very helpful. That's expected fantasy points. You can definitely find that um, in many stat services these days. Yeah, the expected fantasy points model is one that um, that we can definitely point to. Going back to your point about the the touches inside the five, the the issue with that sometimes can be sample size. Uh, but one thing that we do to combat that is about halfway through the season, I kind of revisit my expected touchdown model that I use to predict regression on the season long level from the previous year. Um, sometime around week eight, I'll, I'll do that for every position and start looking at what players are scoring below expectation. A lot of times that could be um, a proxy to figure out um, some some uh, DFS sleeper candidates. I mean, you touched on it, the, the flip-flop from quarterbacks to the rest of the position is the difference between efficiency and volume. And it's why we have to be really careful about chasing uh, big games from running backs without looking at the context. Like I mentioned before, that six-game sample is kind of where we want to start trusting the fantasy numbers. Um, If we just look at one game, and especially if you're somebody that uh, 
isn't doing a ton of research or just hopping on four for four on, on Sunday night and, and trying to build some line, or I'm sorry, Sunday morning, just trying to build some lineups. If you just are looking at fantasy points from last week, that could be really noisy just based off, off a touchdown or a big play. So we want to figure out um, where those players are coming from, if they're actually getting big opportunities and, and that efficiency just typically doesn't carry over for running backs. Um, some more stats that we looked at. I mean, obviously you touched on the opportunity. I'm going to talk a little bit about, about Vegas numbers. So they're not player stats, but they are uh, stats or data points that we have going into the week that, that can be very predictive. And th- if you look at the playbook again, you'll notice that if we look at something like spread, that is, if you've ever played DFS, you'll hear every single website, every single data analyst, every podcast will say, this team's favorite. You should play the running back. If you look at the the correlation across all players, it looks really small, but I, that's why I, I, I like diving into these studies because it's, I mean, we probably more so than any website talk about correlation between a stat and player and fantasy points. And you might look at that and say, there, there's almost no correlation. That doesn't make sense. Why have we been using it? Well, we're looking at all the relevant players, right? So if a team is, is winning their, their player that, uh, that, gets a lot of carries down the stretch. He might get more, more points and, and carries, but the, the pass catching specialist, he gets phased out. So different running backs get used in different ways. The, the, the spread and, and the game flow is going to have different impacts on different types of running backs, but we could look at it a different way. We can say, where are these big games coming from? Um, by an overwhelmingly large amount. Of, I, I took, I'm going to say big games for the rest of the podcast, but I basically took chunks of games. When did a player score 15, 20, 25 points on, on FanDuel or DraftKings um, and looked at where those, those points came from nearly 60% of big games, no matter how much, how I broke up the points came from favorites. If we look at the biggest games, players that scored at least 30 um, DraftKings points, for example, 40% of those came from home favorites. So, there's it's very obvious in cash games that the most likely players to produce usable games to produce huge games they're going to be the favorites and most likely the home favorites now that doesn't mean we can't use the other um uh vegas totals because that still leaves 40 percent of bid games um that are available but uh i think there is some value to be had because there are there's upside in games that that's being ignored. So like one of those situations is teams that are slight underdogs. So if you have a player that's maybe a, a one or a two point underdog, if they're seeing huge volume, they have as much upside as a, a timeshare running back that might be on a team. That's a seven point favorite. Um, so a lot of times those like a road underdog that, but it's only a two point underdog. If that player is a 20 touch uh, touch player, Sometimes he'll still be like sub 10% just because they are underdogs. And those are really interesting spots to leverage and, and why that opportunity is so important. But uh, before we get... Yeah, if I can to, add one thing yeah, too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, remember, I know this sounds overly simplistic, but a team wins a football game because they scored more points. And those points directly result in fantasy points. And yeah. we use favorites and underdogs because we are looking for teams that win and therefore score more points. So when we talk about small underdogs, that is Vegas saying, hey, they're all, if we played this week out 100 times, 1,000 times, this other team that is not the favorite wins a large percentage of those games. And those are the types of bets that can be very profitable in a GPP because yeah. it's just human nature when something is a 60-40 bet, 
we overestimate how often that 60% yeah. is actually going to happen. And we can take advantage of this, especially in tournament plays, because like you said, what 40% of these big games come from slight underdogs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll, I'll touch on that a, a little bit here when we get into the price of tiers and tournaments, but before we do, um, when you are, using all of these metrics and you get to your narrowing down your player pool how are you typically spending uh in cash games just in, in tournaments as well spending your salary on running backs what have you found that the data shown um of how to spend it at the running back position yeah to sum it up in one sentence you better have a great reason for moving away from the premium tier the yeah. top three usually running backs on a slate and sometimes when we get into the middle season the bye weeks it's it's one so you better have a really strong case. You better have basically all the other metrics that we've talked about lined up perfectly before you say, okay, I'm comfortable moving away from this in my optimal build, my cash game build. So we've talked about in previous episodes about how it becomes a very different value proposition in tournaments, depending on the contest you're playing. And there are different leverage spots that you can utilize. You can use that hundred one, uh, excuse me, hundred zero theory that we talked about last week, where if you have a small amount of entries, say a three entry tournament, you can go 100% on a chalky player, or you can go 0% and you can actually end up leveraging uh, at least half or part of the field either way and the game theory behind not playing this premium running back really is all about what happens if that player doesn't meet salary-based mm -hmm. expect expectations so the old adage if you know something the public doesn't know sure go ahead and fade it but otherwise if you're looking for an optimal build you're usually going to have these premium tier running backs yeah. And, and again, a lot of that goes back to like, what, what does the, obviously this is, can be said, like you mentioned up top, um, every position, every podcast, we could say it's weak dependent, but, uh, I mean, if you have a, a, a Derek Henry and a Dalvin cook, we're both going to see a huge workload and, and one is expected to be in, in 40% of lineups and, and one is expected to be in 10% of lineups. That's a really good leverage spot. Right. But if we have a, a, a weird week where for some reason a, a CMC, uh, a Camara and a Dalvin are all on either a bye week or playing like in a, a primetime game and Dal uh, Derek Henry's like the only big beast running back. Then those are the weeks where like, Hey, there isn't a way to pivot and get the Derek Henry workload with any of these other running backs. That's where we're typically um, like eating the chalk on those high price guys. And we see that in these winning tournament lineups uh it's the position that has the the highest average ownership for at least one of the running backs one of the running backs and it's very rare that we see a lineup with um if if they are using a running back in the flex in their tournament lineups winners are very rarely using two uh low uh roster running backs like it's usually a running back that is in somewhere around 20 percent of lineups if not more a second running back that still has a double digit roster rate something like 12 to 15 percent and then if they do use a third running back in their tournament lineup especially on Fandle, that's often where the running back will be sub 10 percent but like we're really good at 
predicting running backs. And we see it in our projection models, the highest correlation between four for four projections and any position, real fantasy points, it's running backs by a mile. So if we're good at projecting running backs, most people are probably that are doing this a lot that have lineup optimizers and, and projections. They're really good at projecting running backs. So if we're really good at it, why go against the grain? We know running backs are going to do good. And sure, you don't have to take the two guys that are 30%, but still, if there's a, a running back with 15%, that's still a pretty popular running back. Um, so I, basically the point is like, it's not the position you want to be getting too contrarian at. Um, you want to be building this player pool of running backs that are seen really consistent, really reliable volume. And then you could start splitting hairs with these things like game flow and deciding if you do have a, a 20 touchback, that's a slight underdog. That's where you could get a little bit contrarian, but um, just throwing caution to the wind and saying, Hey, this guy gets 11 touches a game. I, I have a feeling he's going to score. He's a good play that, that could get you in trouble um, in tournaments, other positions. Um, not so much. One of those other positions where you can throw a little bit of caution to the wind a little bit um, is the wide receiver and, they're hard to predict. And that shows up in when we look at these relevant samples more so than any other position wide receiver, essentially the bigger sample you have um, the better. If we're looking at fantasy production and how it predicts next game, fantasy scoring, the trend line just keeps going up. The bigger the sample in season, the better. And even when you get up to the peak, the correlation between fantasy points for that, whatever sample of games you're using and the next game, it's it's pretty low because it is a highly volatile position. And I think you have some thoughts on that in terms of what we're using for data when we're trying to project our wide receivers. Yeah, and I, I think this makes total sense. If you think of all types of fantasy football, even if you're a dynasty player out there, I don't want to go too far into it, but there's a reason why these same dynasty Whoa, dynasties, players are dynasties way <laughs> away from DFS. Yeah, we were far away. I know, I know. I'll, I'll come back down in just a moment. But there's a reason these wide receivers, these same wide receivers are in the top few rounds of dynasty mm -hmm. drafts and season-long drafts every single year is because there are only a few wide receivers who separate themselves away from that seven, 7.5 targets per game yeah. average. So a lot of times during the summer months, you'll hear analysts correctly saying in best ball drafts or season long drafts, wide receivers are really deep position. Well, when you're talking about a main slate and you're talking about guaranteeing your guy that you roster for a high salary gets eight or more targets, it's really low the amount of wide receivers you're actually going to be able to get. So first and foremost, especially in cash game builds, I'm really focused on targets per game or target market share. And I think you're going to say a little bit more about that. But for the most part, I know there are some great advanced metrics like uh, weighted opportunity rating, which uh, factors in air yards and targets together, which is really great. But my overgeneralization for the wide receiver position especially on FanDuel, as I've been very focused there the last week, is targets for cash, air yards for GPPs. Obviously an overgeneralization, but bankable opportunity, we really just want a high target volume. And if we can have a couple more targets than the field, we don't necessarily have to be overly efficient. We just have to be in line with the field's efficiency. So I'm almost always getting one premium wide receiver in every single lineup. Yeah, I want to touch a little bit more on um, what you just mentioned because I, I think a lot of people will – we've talked about like double counting and and, and not um, not double counting. And a lot of people that are new to data or, or new to trying to do their research on their own might look at 
what you just said and say, well, if I know these guys are getting a lot of targets, why do I need to look at target share? Isn't that kind of the same thing? The guys with the highest target share are going to see the most targets. That's true. But also the, the reason I think it's really important to track target share specifically is because it can be a indication of players that are going to pop if their team is in line to see a big uptick in, in passing numbers. So like you said, that that eight targets per game is very hard to get over the course of a season. But if a player that is seeing uh, 25% of his team's targets, uh, that any scene that's equating to like six and a half targets per game, if they're 10 point underdogs and they're going to have to throw all fourth quarter, those six and a half targets with the 25% target share, that target share is very stable. That could easily turn in to nine or 10 targets. And that's really important because like I talked about with quarterbacks, that garbage time, that doesn't work for quarterbacks because they're in horrible conditions for wide receivers, especially number one wide receivers that are going to see uh, a very high target share. That one drive can be a make or break. I talked about it in the playbook. If this team is behind and they go on a fourth quarter drive with three minutes left in the game, they throw it 10 times, they collect 90 yards, but don't score a touchdown. That quarterback got you maybe three points. You know, if it's 75 yards, that's three points and he doesn't score. So that's a couple more points, but it's not going to change your week. If his number one wide receiver caught five of those balls for, for 50 yards, that's 10 points in PPR on DraftKings that might put him over the 100-yard bonus. All of a sudden, in that one drive, you got 13 extra points in garbage time on one drive. That might go from a, that could go from a 13-point game to a 26-point game. That's a difference in, in winning a tournament, like easily. So, that's why I like market share specifically for those situations. Not just garbage time, but it's just a, a really easy example um, of of why we want to be paying attention to market share and. Another stat that I want to touch on going back, we've talked about Vegas lines for, for all of these uh, positions and pretty much across the board, we see that where the big games come from uh, is most likely to be a home favorite. Now it's going to be different for different positions. Like we talked about for, for running backs, those huge games are like 60% of them for, for wide receivers, like 35% of them, but it's still the biggest share but these Vegas lines presented a really interesting and unique opportunity and a very rare inefficiency in Vegas, which is something that's almost impossible to find when it comes to betting lines. When I looked at running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends, I kept seeing that these uh, road underdogs were logging as many big games or bankable games um, more so than home uh, home underdogs or uh, road favorites. And I was like, why is that happening? Basically the road underdog is playing a home favorite, right? Makes sense. These games where the home team is favored, the games are higher scoring than when the home team is the underdog by about two more points, which doesn't sound like much, but over the course of five seasons, thousands of games, that's a huge difference, a two point difference per game. If we look at how Vegas is, um, is, putting a point spread to these games or, or a over under or implied point total to these games, the gap is almost nothing. So in reality, home dogs, uh, home favorites, those games are way higher scoring games when the home dog way lower scoring, but Vegas isn't accounting for it. Ownership is driven by these implied po point totals by these Vegas numbers. So we have a really good opportunity to take advantage of the field, basically by targeting either low owned home favorites or road underdogs or 
fading players that are expected to have high ownership when the home team is the underdog. It's it's it is a really little fascinating find, and I I think everyone should go to that wide receiver article and take a look at that um, because it's hard to find those inefficiencies in Vegas. Yeah, and I just wanted to add one point too, where we can also talk about how it goes back to that same point with running back big games and how a large portion of them still come from underdogs. So what we're really finding is these outlier performances where Vegas got the the, the most likely outcome did not occur. And that's uh, kind of why we go into these second tier Vegas totals, because usually yeah. what the implied totals are saying for both teams is that actually we think those offenses can both perform. And the total of the game isn't that much lower than the highest total game Mm -hmm. of the week. But we can get these performances when the teams overperform more from that cohort than they do the very highest cohort. So I think that is a really big spot to to exploit there. These uh, maybe these big time receivers from these second tier games. Yeah, it, it, go, it goes back to your point. Like people think of a, a 60 40, uh, the chance is 60 40. They way overweight that that 60 part and undervalue that 40 part. Like that's that's where we want to be taking um, advantage, especially in GPPs. You, you touched a little bit already on how you want to, um, what kind of wide receivers you want to get into your lineup. Do you have any more thoughts on just like the specific pricing of the wide receivers that are being used in lineups? Yeah, I touched on it already that I'm really having a hard time moving away from at least one premium salary wide receiver in basically every build and leveraging somewhere else. However, uh, the real reason behind that is because of the salary based uh, consistency of these premium wide receivers. Now we would expect them on average to score more than the rest of the position because they have a higher salary. That's already built in. But what's really interesting is if you go back at the last few seasons of data is that they get closer and more consistently meet their salary-based expectations than the rest of the position. And that kind of makes sense because the position itself is so volatile. You're not going to see these really large average hit rates, especially for players who don't have consistent usage. They're getting five targets one week, seven targets the next, three targets the next. That's where that volatility initially comes from. So again... When we're talking about cash games and you want bankable production, meeting salary-based expectations, it's really hard to find consistent quality outside of, say, 8,500. And that really goes for both sites. Yeah, and and if you if you've been listening closely, we've been talking about paying up for one wide receiver, um, paying up for for these running backs. So you start to run out of salary really quickly, and I think that's why you see a lot of really successful cash games. You'll see a stars and scrub approach, and those scrubs are usually like the second and third pass catcher, right? Because if they're if we know that the difference between a, a five thousand dollar receiver and a six thousand dollar receiver is like one target, but they're both five target guys, why pay for the six thousand dollar guy? Um, pay for the five thousand or forty five hundred or something like that um so that's worked really well in tournaments um not necessarily salary based here but just we even though it is a a super um, volatile position it's not like we're just going in and and, and throwing in three guys that are going to be in less than 10 percent of lineups um winners haven't been overly contrarian when they're rostering wide receivers we like you said it's it usually coincides with with a, a high salary player not always but we do usually see one guy that is somewhere around that 20 percent range and then a second wide receiver that is 
around like 10%-ish, but it's rare that tournament winners um, at the wide receiver, receiver position are going on the extremes. They're very rarely paying all the way up for three wide receivers, and obviously there's the flex position to talk about as well, but for the three required wide receiver slots, very rare, rarely paying all the way up very rarely paying all the way down. Also very rarely being super chalky or super contrarian, like a balanced strategy at the wide receiver position where you have to roster three on both sides. Um, a, a somewhat balanced strategy has worked really well. We've been talking a ton about your uh, article that you just put out, FanDuel Cash Games. Uh, if you haven't signed up for FanDuel yet, your day's about to get 20% better. If you start playing fantasy this season on FanDuel, they will give you a 20% bonus on your first deposit up to $500 by going to FanDuel.com slash DFS MVP. This is a big time bonus. All you need to do to claim it is make your first deposit. Uh, we've been talking a ton about how Nice it is to play on Fandle specifically because of a lot of their contest structures. They have a ton of really good three max single entry contests and just a lot of contests that are paying out a really high percentage of the field. If you go through and look at any stake, really, most of these contests are paying over 25% of the field. That's really rare for uh, DFS contests these days. I made a, a, a little thread on Twitter that pointed out, like we play mid to high stakes, single entry, three entry contests. Two of the best contests that I've seen across any site are on FanDuel this week. And I've also broke down the salary structures for, um, for all of these tournaments. So I would really encourage people to check that out. Check out FanDuel for the cash games and GPP. It's really fun because you get to set a new lineup every game, every slate, every week. So when your uh, redraft team is hitting the skids in week four or five, uh, you still have something to restart. There's a ton of different formats. Uh, we've been talking about the main slate a ton. There's single game contests, best ball contests, snake drafts, um, contests for the smaller slates, uh, three to five games a.m. p.m. So you can play those. You can play contests with your friend, which we actually touched on some strategy for those uh, kind of different weird contests that you might be playing. So I would really encourage everybody to try those out. Check out the slate for week one. The Sunday Million uh, contest is up. That's the contest that I go into in the DFS playbook to get all of this strategy that we're talking about. Uh, and if you want to experience the season-long wins without the season-long waits, sign up today at fanduelcom slash DFS MVP. Age and location restrictions apply. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires after 30 days. Let's get into the tight ends uh, one thing talking about the relevant sample sizes, tight end is a really unique position because if you look at the article that I wrote, uh, we see that tight end stabilizes really quickly and then stays consistent for a really long time. So after about four games, we see a really stable fantasy scoring, and that is very counterintuitive because like wide receiver, tight ends aren't seeing a lot of targets. They're seeing even less targets, so how the hell could it stabilize faster? The reason is we see a ton of fantasy scoring concentrated on just a few tight ends. We have this elite tier of tight ends that scores a ton of points, and then a couple more tight ends pop up uh, throughout the year, and that's basically our pool of usable tight ends. We have, like, every week in DFS, we have, like, maybe eight or nine usable tight ends. Um, last year, if we look at half PPR scoring, 158 instances of a tight end scoring 10 or more vandal points. 15 tight ends accounted for almost two-thirds of those games. Seven tight ends made up 40% of 10-point games on Fandle. So um, 
We just don't have that many usable tight ends. That's why scoring stabilizes really quickly. What stats are you looking at with your tight ends? And is there anything that's really different than what you're looking at with wide receivers since they're both just kind of low volume plays? Yep, volume's still the king. So that's definitely the most important. But what I found in my research is that red zone targets matter even more for the tight end position than they do for the wide receiver. That makes sense intuitively, especially for the tier of tight ends that aren't Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller, George Kittle. And uh, what we see in those situations is that the big games come from players who get more touchdowns than their expected Mm -hmm. touchdowns, even more so than the wide receiver position. So we're going to overly weigh just a little bit more, but overly weigh the red zone target share. And we can look at the full 20 yard line, but we do see another spike in the visualization that I show in the article that the closer you get to the end zone, by far, you see the touchdown rates start to spike. And there are some situational aspects that can really take away or help a tight end. And while I don't have the numbers behind it right now, I really do think that defensive scheme and defensive personnel can really influence the tight end more than it can influence uh, great receivers or great running backs because that is often based on the situational game plan, which which team executes better than the other. But especially if there is a defense that is notorious for getting pressure on an opposing offense, that opposing offense that's getting bombarded with the consistent pressure often is forced into check down throws, which usually go to running backs and tight ends. Other situations we want to focus on are defenses with excellent secondaries. I think we've uh, moved away from the idea of two great cornerbacks because you don't need to single coverage everyone in the NFL at all times. But if you have a great secondary, often there's just somewhere else where the quarterback's going to need to go. This is where tight ends can get their big games from. But especially when we have only a few uh, really solid in terms of targets and target share tight ends, it can get really murky really fast. And trying to parse these out, it can be tough. Yeah, I mean, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, not just where tight ends are going to have big games against defenses or bad games against defenses. But, um, I mean, we've seen in the past couple years, like, I think there's a two-year stretch where you just played a tight end against Arizona or you played a tight end against the Giants. And again, that, that you're right. It just comes down to there's just certain teams that scheme that doesn't cover the tight end. And, and I mean, we can go – we can have a conversation all day about defense does or doesn't matter. And, you know, with, with running back, game flow matters so much. With quarterback, efficiency matters so much. With wide receiver – wide receiver uh, against a defense that's a tough metric because what wide receiver are we looking at wide receiver one slot but tight end some teams like if they're bad against a tight end they're just bad against tight end um looking at at some of the vegas numbers uh, that that i talked about for the other positions uh it looks similar to wide receivers in terms of like tight ends the most big games are going to come from home favorites it's a weighted a little more heavily for tight ends and i i think it kind of ties into to what you were saying because tight ends are a little more touchdown dependent on their scoring than wide receivers like we want those more ideal game scripts for tight ends right they're going to need to be scoring more touchdowns there's going to be less guys that are getting nine catches for 90 yards so if we follow those those positive game scripts a little more um i think that's going to benefit us and going back to our last podcast it kind of makes sense. One like sneaky stack that we've seen, especially on FanDuel, is a tight end defense stack. Like, why the hell would that work? Well, it's kind of following a game flow narrative. So um, if you if you kind of think about it, it really makes sense. When you're looking at salary for tight end, how much you're spending on tight end, what have you found? Yeah, in most situations, 
it's <laughs> it gets as i said really really tough because you're going to just have this big cohort of tight ends who all look to have the same projected volume so more so than other positions we kind of take a tight end one or the field approach and yeah. so that obviously we have to bring in the contest the number of people we're playing against but you can find similar price expected usage from the mid-tier tight ends and the low-tier tight ends. So a lot of times, I, I really stay away from mid-tier mm-hmm. who have been priced up due to great matchups uh, unless I'm trying to do some sort of contrarian build. I, I usually see, like, I think last year, an, an anecdotal uh, example was TJ Hawkinson consistently climbing up to a top three salary really because he was the only pass catcher and the matchup looked decent. That's not always enough for a tight end. We need, as you said, a better game situation. And that's just that those aren't the factors that we really look for. Yeah. And in my DFS playbook article, I put a quote that says exactly what you said. I said, don't middle the position. Um, We saw a really flat trend line when we looked at salary based scoring expectation. And if you think if we have a really flat trend line, wouldn't that run contrary to what we're saying, like pay all the way up or all the way down. But if we rewind a little bit, we remember that tight end scoring stabilizes and becomes predictable really quickly. So if that's true, then how can there be a a flat trend line that would suggest that lower tier tight ends are scoring as much higher tier tight ends all the time. The problem is it just seems like DFS sites aren't adjusting their salaries quick enough or they're pricing the position really poorly. So yes, these top tier tight ends, these three guys, two guys, they're blowing the field away, but the rest of the field, it takes us a while to figure out who these like middle tier productive guys are. So it takes the other sites, the, the DFS sites time to adjust as well. So if they're pricing, like you said, a TJ Hawkinson last year, a thousand more dollars than I, I don't know, like a Jared cook when he was being productive. Um, that's a really good opportunity to, to roster a Jared cook because it is, a um, an unpredictable, um, uh, position in terms of, of, uh, volume and and consistency but we do know that the scoring is going to concentrate on a few guys if we can figure out who that is before the websites then we get some really good um we get some really good leverage opportunities i did want to touch on one thing that i found that was extremely interesting and when i was going through the dfs playbook I, i looked at salary and i looked at ownership rates for for players and winning lineups and a lot of times especially with these onesie positions it kind of just looks like oh well sometimes they use a contrarian build sometimes uh they use a chalky build it's hard to figure out because it's all over the place but especially on FanDuel, when gpp winners ate the chalk they did so with a high-priced tight end. And I think that runs a little bit counterintuitive. Why would we pay up in salary and also eat the chalk? Well, if a if there's a tight end that is a low salary but high ownership, that means the field thinks that a player that doesn't get a lot of volume, that's being thrust into a starting position like the starting tight end got hurt. All of a sudden, that player's chalky, but we're going to eat the chalk on a player that might see five targets. That is a, a really bad spot to go with the uh, grain. If we're going uh, to follow the field, why not make it a Travis Kelsey in a perfect condition? And those conditions have shown up in winning lineups. So I, I think it is... Um, 
it was a really interesting find. And I think one we're still going to be able to leverage because a lot of people just aren't going to be willing to pay up and have a chalky player at a onesie position. It, it's it, intuitively, it seems like a position you'd want to be contrarian at. And then another thing that I found at tight end, that it's not often that you see a, um, a tournament winner use a tight end as a flex. It's only happened three times across FanDuel and DraftKings over the last two years for the millionaire, the Sunday million. But when they did, they made it part of a stack and they used it to offset either uh, a chalky player that is opposite that tight end um, or they used it to offset a chalky stack. So if they were rostering a chalky Mike Gusecki, they offset it with a uh, contrarian Darren Waller. If they were rostering um, a very chalky chief stack, they would offset it with um, the, the tight end that they were playing against. So when they did use two tight ends or when they flex their tight ends, it was specifically used to offset a chalky stack. And I found that really interesting as well. Um, well, I think it's really cool. I mean, I think you can go, we could go on about this topic, or at least I could for a long time. But uh, I like to think about each lineup in terms of a concept called leverage points. Mm-hmm. And leverage points can come from anywhere in your lineup. And I'll just describe it really uh, quickly. The points that are against the field are your leverage points. And the m- more people that are in the contest that you play, the more leverage points you're going to need in order to win a tournament. So if you're getting a chief stack and you're playing Demarcus Robinson instead of Travis Kelsey, your leverage points are Demarcus Robinson's points versus the field's Travis Kelsey. So it does make sense that in these great situations where a Darren Waller or Travis Kelsey are the best tight end in the main slate by a wide margin, Get your leverage points elsewhere. That's why every week is different. And that's why we see chalky tight ends win tournaments sometimes you get leverage elsewhere it's fine yeah no that that that's a really good point and i think uh i think probably some of that will tie back to uh jordan z score that we talked about last week because uh, i think a lot of tight the, a couple those couple tight ends probably end up having high z scores a lot um defense let's jump to that i think uh this one we probably will hit on things pretty quickly because uh it's it's somewhat intuitive but what are what are some stats that uh you look at when you're when you're parsing out your defenses for your weekly dfs Yeah, well, first I want to say that with defensive scoring, we talk about wide receiver and tight end being volatile. Defense is more volatile than that. I know it's hard to say, well, what is volatile? And, you know, it's hard to sometimes quantify in your head what does more volatile mean. But we really don't have a lot of stats and high correlated stats with defense. So we're using, we're leaning on Vegas totals once again and implied totals then really everything else. Uh, I've mentioned before that we want to focus on teams that are getting consistent pressure because pressure often leads to the explosive defensive scoring plays that we need, especially to win tournaments, sacks, fumbles, interceptions. Those are all uh, byproducts of pressure or theoretical byproducts at least. And I'll admit that I use player grades and unit grades uh, from various stat services because there aren't a lot of defensive stats that are really great at predicting performance, at least at this point. The only other thing I want to add is that you 
can look at bad offensive lines, offensive lines that are consistently ranked low, getting trashed by other teams because there could be a mediocre or just average defense that can have their way with a bad offensive line, creating pressure in unexpected situations. Um, and you can often find mid and low salary defenses that uh, have a huge line advantage that you might be able to take advantage of yourself. Yeah, the, um, the, the I think the important thing about defense, and again, it's it should be somewhat intuitive if you've paid attention to to DFS for the last couple of years. Um, home favorites and and defenses that are facing teams with implied point totals, uh, low implied point totals, those should be that that's how we should narrow down our player pool, especially for cash. Like favorites are are almost exclusively in my cash game lineups um, more so than any other position. The the only position that had a, a higher correlation of any um, uh, pre-game data point to next game fantasy points, um, quarterbacks and their implied point totals, and then defenses with uh, the point spread and the opponent's implied point totals. Like those are the two most predict or three most predictive numbers when it comes to the Vegas lines. And and like you said, it all comes down to like getting that pressure in the situations where defenses can get pressure. The most opportunities for pressure is when offenses have to throw more. So intuitively, when the opposing offense is forced in a situation where they throw more than usual, that defense is going to have more opportunities for sacks, interceptions, um, eventually touchdowns. But one kind of sneaky thing that I found is that a fair amount of the these big tournament winning games came in high scoring contests and again well if a defense is giving up a bunch of points how are they going to score a lot of fantasy points because in these high scoring contests both teams are more likely to throw more and it's a rare occurrence but it happens enough where there can be situations where a game looks like a shootout but one of those defenses can have the opportunity can have a lot of scoring because remember points aren't just scored on the offensive side of the ball they're scored on the defensive side of the ball ball they're scored with special teams and if, if you can have a defense that makes up a chunk of their team's 40 points in a, a 40 to 35 game uh, that team can still be be uh, tournament winning so you're not going to go out and seek out the game with the 50 point over under but um, those games with relatively high over unders with the right conditions with battle lines with two teams that already throw a lot those can be games where we might uh, look for some contrarian options uh, with our defenses what um you you kind of briefly touched on it when you were talking about these implied point totals and area down your team but what has your uh pricing look like when you're typically rostering your defense well we talked about this a couple podcasts ago at the beginning of august but i'll bring it up again the position that has a higher relative salary on FanDuel versus DraftKings is defense mm-hmm. With quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, we see the top tier players have a lower relative salary or take up less of the sal- percentage of the cap on FanDuel than DraftKings, which is very, it's a very interesting choice from the FanDuel pricing algorithm. But what that means is that the de- defensive top options, usually uh, DST 1, 2, and 3, are going to be pretty tough to get to in FanDuel lineups. And I will add that that is one way to be contrarian if you're playing in a tournament. You can find great defenses that are priced highly because they're in great situations. And uh, just to bring up the defense out GPP strategy that I talked about last week where you can then pair it with a running back or, as we talked about today, a tight end, yeah. theoretically. Especially on FanDuel. You can, 
yeah, you can bank on that game flow situation being significantly better for that defense versus the rest of the defenses on the main slate. But in general, we really, again, are looking for a mid-tier defense that fits all the bills of the metrics that we're looking for. Uh, the bottom five defenses on a main slate have a higher variance than the rest of the already volatile field. So in tournaments, okay, take some shots on it, especially if you see something that you think the field won't. But in cash games, that's probably a place to stay away from. So if we can't afford the high salary guys and we're really trying to stay away from the low salary guys, we're only trying, we're only working with about maybe five to seven defenses each week that can fit our most of our builds. And from there, we just uh, use those metrics as best we can. Yeah, I, I think the um, when when you you just talked about like taking your shots on some pump plays with defense. I think the only time it's really worth taking it is sometimes you'll see a really bad real life defense when their team is favored, they'll still be priced really low. I think that's really the only place to take shots in tournaments because what we've seen in tournaments is like punting doesn't work. We don't really see that many tournament winners, actually barely any tournament winners that completely punt the position. And especially on DraftKings, I, th I think that might be surprising because you talked about um, how much the, the most expensive defenses cost on the flip side. DraftKings like aggressively bottoms out their defensive salary floor. So you would think, oh, if I can get a $1,500 defense, if they can just score me three or four points, I could get up to another stud. That should give me more upside in my tournament. We haven't seen it work in tournaments. So we still should be chasing out the if we're the the middle tier, the bottom of the middle tier, like the, either those teams that are just small favorites or even small underdogs, um, those are usually going to be better plays than these super cheap defenses because um, those teams are usually the biggest underdogs. We just we just don't see in any format this complete punt of a defense working and it's again it is super um it's it sounds really convenient because we're sitting here saying this position is volatile uh you can't predict it very well but these super cheap defenses that are huge underdogs with horrible conditions they just don't often score many if any points like you could get negative points on both sides for for defense so um that's that's comes up a lot uh so that is um that's a really good wrap on i think both of our articles again if you want to kind of go back instead of having to take notes for everything we just said i, I hopefully it just kind of encourages you guys to go through and look at the playbook um look at at matt's article on his FanDuel process because it's going to get you prepared uh for next week we still have um t uh 10 days uh away until the main slate so you got time to check it out before we get into the week one uh, nitty-gritty next week um please check us out if you're already watching us on youtube you can subscribe as well on any podcast platform uh, please rate and review on itunes if you are on youtube please like and subscribe if you're looking for another way to get our dfs sub head over to price picks uh, 444.com price picks to get one of our dfs subs for 20 dollars. be sure to head over to our subscriber only discord once you're signed up i have two chats uh, this week focusing on redraft sunday the 5th and tuesday the 7th both at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, if you want to get caught up on some more Evergreen Theory, please go over to the DFS 
strategy hub a lot of those articles are free and again next week week one um we're getting into the real flow of the season so it's going to be really fun uh be sure to check that out um the the entire content plan is on the site on my twitter so we're uh we're in week one we're going to be talking player values the stuff that you guys are really here for coming next week uh be sure to check us out more on twitter 444 is at 444 football matt's at draftaholic I'm at TJ Hernandez. We will see you guys next week in week one. See ya.